So welcome to One in Messiah and welcome to the people in Facebook and YouTube land. Um, the other day, two days ago was Ash Wednesday. Most of the Christian world celebrated Ash Wednesday, the beginning of a penitential season, which goes back to the ancient days of Christianity and moving toward Passover slash Holy Week, which this year are far apart but they're not usually far apart. This year, they're far apart. And the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of Yeshua, which is the basis of salvation. And since we're kind of in a penitential time, and since David's one of my favorite characters, well, not a character, he's a real person, and um, I can't wait to meet him. I hope it's tonight. I can't wait to meet them. But anyway, um, the Psalms are so beautiful. And as you always hear me say, you know, David's such a, well, shall we say, colorful character. Samuel anoints him. The Holy Spirit rushes on him and never departs. God says, David's a man after my own heart. And tonight we're going to talk about some of the stuff that led to Psalm 51. Now, if you don't know what Psalm 51 is, I don't know what to tell you. Um, if you've never read it, we're only going to do like the first four or five verses tonight. We might do a little more of it some other time. But it's it's David crying out because he realizes what a sinner he is. And he realizes that he needs grace and that he needs mercy. And he realizes that even though he's the king... And even though he's been doing whatever he feels like doing, and he's got women all over the place, children all over the place, has people murdered, has people imprisoned, sets up all kinds of schemes and deceitful things. There comes a time where it all kind of catches up to him. And... I hope you know the story of David and Bathsheba because that's the the background of this psalm. And this is going to be a short teaching, so I'll tell you real quick. Linda's already laughing. But I'll tell you real quick, as you know, David had already a bunch of wives, children all over the place. And he was walking around on the porch and the Walk, walkway of his palace and he sees a woman that he wants. I never could figure out how if he's in the palace and standing on a you know walkway around the palace and she is somewhere at her house bathing, how he's able to, to see her, but he sees her. And he doesn't have enough women, doesn't have enough wives. He says, I want her too. And so they go and get her. And they bring her. And, of course, she's married to Uriah the Hittite. He's always called Uriah the Hittite, who's one of David's most faithful generals. I mean, this guy would die for David. So while he's at the front, David's got his wife at the palace. And she gets pregnant. And so the question is, what do we do now? Why well, no, we'll call Uriah back from the front. We'll have him spend a few days at home. 
And then when the baby's born, people may say, oh, you know, I don't know, counting the day. Well, maybe he's a little premature, but so Uriah comes back, David gets him drunk, feeds him, says, okay, why don't you go home and see your wife? He goes, oh, he goes, my men are fighting at the front, and I don't think I should be in my bed with my wife, and I don't want to be at my house while all my men are up there fighting. So long story short, I'm just paraphrasing, David arranges for Uriah to be killed by the enemy. So he sends, I can't remember the general's name now, with orders to make sure you're, yes, thank you. Put in the middle of the, you know, the, the, the worst part of the attack so that he's sure to be killed. And sure enough, he was killed. So then David said, oh, she's a widow now. I can marry her. <laughs> and so he marries her. She's already quite pregnant by that time. And she gives birth to a boy whose name we'll never know because he, he didn't make it to the eighth day. The prophet Nathan told David that because of what you've done, part of your punishment is going to be the child is going to die. And so David spends one week, he spends seven days fasting, not changing his clothes, wailing in prayer, rolling around on the floor, and the child dies. So that's kind of the background. And then when the child dies, he get, washes himself, changes his clothes, gets something to eat, and he says, well, and we don't know the baby's name because he died on day seven, wouldn't be named till the next day. And David says, well, he won't come back to me, but someday I'll go to him. And that becomes one of the famous passages, verses there. But what happens here is he writes Psalm 51. Verse, we're only going to do, I said, four or five verses. Verse 1, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Very intense. You have to picture him. Hasn't changed his clothes, hasn't eaten, hasn't had any water to drink. Just rolling around on the floor in anguish. And he's repenting of... A lot of things. I mean, you know how we always go through this thing about people say, well, I'm a good person. I don't do anything wrong. I don't have any sins. And just by the fact that you say, I don't have any sins, that's a sin too, because <laughs> number one, you're lying. And number two is you're making a fool of God who tells you that you're a sinner. So here he is. What has he done? He's coveted this woman. And you have to keep in mind, he doesn't just have one wife who's home, you know, and he happens to have an affair. He's got a whole bunch of wives, and he's got a whole bunch of mistresses. But he wants one more. He wants the wife of one of his most loyal generals who's up at the front risking his life every day for the king and for the country. Whew. So he's coveting, and of course, he commits adultery with her. 
she within him with her. The scheming that goes on in just the quick description I gave of the story. We got to make up a story. We got to figure this out. This is going to be bad for public relations. If CNN and Fox get this story, it's not going to look good. I'm going to go down in the polls. So we have to come up with some kind of a story here. And so he does all this scheming with Uriah. And finally, doesn't kill Uriah himself, but arranges his murder. Which I would guess in the eyes of the commandment, you could say, he murdered him, took part in the murder, planned the murder. So all these things he's done just in this interaction of what probably was a couple of weeks' time. And all these things are on his mind. But he's thinking he's done other things too. Why? Because sin begets sin. You know, once you start committing sins, it leads you to do more and more sins. You know, Paul says your conscience gets seared. You know, the first time you do something kind of bothers your conscience. Second time you do it, it's a little easier. The eighth time you do it, eh, nothing's happened to me. I haven't gotten caught. Things are going pretty well. The 28th time you do it, you don't even say anything to yourself. So sin begets other sins. So David had built this complex web, starting with one sin, which was coveting. And you know, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, you'll never be tempted above what you can resist. And in that situation, God will always provide a way out. So if you picture this whole interaction, he looks, he sees this woman, he says, I want that woman. He could have said, no, I can't have that woman. That's Uriah's wife. I can't think like that. Uriah's my friend. He's my general. I got to stop looking at her. I'm going to go back to the inside the palace. No, he sends his guys to go and get her. He's, he can have a way out, but he chooses not to have a way out. And then one sin leads to five or six other ones. And then David has this complex web of sins. And he acknowledges this. He says, my transgressions, plural. He doesn't say, well, the one sin I had. You know, I'm a pretty good guy, but, you know, I messed up once. He talks about his transgressions, plural. He talks about how he needs the mercy and loving kindness for plural transgressions. And if he did all this stuff here, you know he's done it other places. So he acknowledges that he's committed all these sins. You can't repent of your sin without acknowledging that you did it. Right? You can't repent. You know, nowadays, there's not much talk about sin and repentance. Not many churches talk about sin and repentance. You evangelize someone, you know, hey, get some Jesus into your life and, you know, it'll kind of help you out and help you out at work and you'll feel a little better about yourself. You'll build up your self-esteem. And, yeah, things, you know, it's good. I tried it. I tried the Jesus thing. It was nice. You got to try it too. You know, kind of like when we were young adults and 
people were meditating with gurus and they were doing all this weird stuff and say, yeah, you got to try some of this stuff. It kind of makes you feel, well, that's not how you come to Jesus. That's not how you come to the cross. That's not how you come to him. You say, I want to get a little more of you in my life because I want to feel better about myself. No, David acknowledges that he's broken all these laws. Broken all of them. I mean, in just that interaction, he's broken five of the Ten Commandments, let alone who knows how many others of the laws of Moses. So it was a long time after his original sin that this repentance takes place. It's at least nine months. So the question is, what was he thinking during those nine months? What was he doing during those nine months? Well, we got Uriah out of the way. I took you as my wife. Now this is all legal. No one knows about the other stuff. Nobody knows I'm, you know, everybody's going to just think I'm the father of the child and everything's going to be cool. So for nine months or so, what's he thinking? I got away with it. Everything's cool. Until the prophet Nathan comes. And read all of this. It's all in Second Samuel. You really need to read about Nathan because Nathan confronts the king. Now he's the king. Now we don't have we don't have experiences with kings like in this sense of king, right? I mean, King Charles is pretty wussy king. I mean, King Charles can't send a bunch of soldiers pick up somebody and lock them up in the Tower of London like Henry VIII could do. But these kings could have said, hey, you know what? If you don't shut up, I'm going to have you executed. I want that guy executed. And he would have been executed. I want that woman. She would have come. I want to get rid of you guys. They'd be gone. So during that time, he's not repenting. The prophet Nathan, who's, he's a prophet. God talks to him and leads him to David to tell David he's, that David has messed up. You know, God sets up a situation where Nathan shows up and tells David a story about a man who has a little lamb, and the lamb means more to him than anything. And a rich guy went and took the lamb and killed the lamb and ate the lamb, and he says, Tell me who this guy is. I'm going to have him killed. What a creep. And Nathan says, it's you. You're the one who took somebody's lamb. Poor Uriah, one of your soldiers, you took his prized possession. And, you know, with a sense I mean it. I don't mean it in a sexist way, but he doesn't have a lot of possessions like you do. You took his wife. You're the one. And so this is what triggers all this. Nathan brings him this word, and he suddenly realizes the situation. You know, if you remember the day you met Jesus, you suddenly realized, whoa, I got a trainload of baggage that I've been carrying around. Whoa, I wasn't thinking about it until just now. David's not thinking about it until just now. And through Nathan, he realizes what his situation is. He thought he was standing. He was the king. But actually, he had fallen. 
he actually had fallen into the pit. You know, Psalm 40, he writes this beautiful psalm about, you took me out of the pit, you took me out of the miry clay, and you put me on firm ground, and you steadied my steps. Well, he had already fallen into the pit. But Nathan the prophet went and confronted him. He could have had Nathan killed for bothering him. But he realized what the situation was. He realized that he had fallen, that he was defective, that he was frail, that he had rebelled, that he had not followed the law. You know, David always says, I meditate on the law day and night. That's nice. But if you don't keep the law and you just meditate on it, what's the point of meditating on it? Oh, come on, that's a little bit funny. But, you know, he, 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 he knows now that he's fallen from the law. So God sets up a situation, which he normally does and does it with us too, where this guy Nathan shows up, also told David he wasn't going to build the temple, if you remember. Yes, yes. Bathsheba, of course, the happy ending to the story is that she becomes Solomon's mother, which is kind of interesting. So the genealogy of, well, we're not going to get into genealogy. Solomon becomes the ancestor of Joseph, St. Joseph, Mary's husband. But Jesus, of course, does not come through that line. He comes through the line of David's other son, Nathan, who gives rise eventually to Mary. So, because of course, David, the Messiah, is the son of David. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Please read that for your homework, too. So God sets up a, situ a situation. David has nothing he can do but turn to God's mercy. He doesn't say, hey, look, Nathan, I got away with it this long. I'm not going to do a press conference or anything. I'm not going to be on TV telling everybody my story. No one knows this story. Everybody thinks I married Bathsheba and she had a baby and the baby died. We'll just leave it at that. No. He turns to God's mercy. He opens his heart. And he says he knows that there's love and kindness in that. You know, God never rejects a contrite heart, which comes up later in that same psalm. A contrite heart he never rejects. A proud heart he rejects. Nothing wrong with me. Don't you wish, Lord, everybody was like me? I'm pretty awesome. No, he says, I, I need love. I need kindness. I'm a disaster. And he knows that, well, he knows I didn't put the spacing in here right. But he also knows that he can be forgiven and restored. And when you look at those first three verses, you can see that David knows he can be restored if he turns back. Right? Knows he can be restored. Loving kindness and mercy. He knows he can be made clean. He lived in the covenant of law. He lived in the covenant of mikvah, the water cleansing, the running water going over people at various stages in their life, when their life was changing, when and this was the whole baptism of Yeshua and the Jordan, which the churches never talk about because they don't have the first clue what's in the Old Testament. But that's a different story. He knows he can be made clean. 
He says, I want to be washed and cleaned. When you went into the mikvah, you were cleansing yourself of impurity. Symbolically, of course, it could clean the dirt off of you. Couldn't clean the dirt out of your soul, but clean the dirt out of your body. So every time the priest went into the temple to minister, they went in the mikvah bath. Because ritualistically, they were being cleaned. Although if they were creeps then, they were still creeps when they went in. But it was symbolic. So he wants to be washed and cleaned. He wants his transgression blotted out. He says, blotted out. He doesn't want it covered. The law covers sin. Yom Kippur is the day of the coverings. It's not total forgiveness like we have from Yeshua. David wants the sins blotted out. He wants the new covenant version of total forgiveness. He wants the new covenant version of going to bury, even though they're Old Testament passages, going to bury my sin in the depths of the ocean, not even to remember them. Even though you're, as, even though you're scarlet, I'm going to make you white as snow. Killing the lamb doesn't do that. Yeshua does that. As far as the east is from the west, I put your transgressions from you. David says, blot out my sin. Don't just scold me and say, don't do it again. Blot out the sin. He has hope that he can be forgiven. He doesn't say to God, I'm going to bargain with you. Look, if you overlook this whole business with Bathsheba, if you overlook this whole business with this baby boy, I'll do some really good stuff. I'll stop being a creep. I'll give some of this furniture to the Salvation Army. The next time people come around, you know, taking up a collection, I'll give them some money. And yeah, I'm going to tithe at the temple. Well, there wasn't a temple yet. Yeah, I'm going to tithe at the tent, but I'll even give it a little extra. I'll make a deal with you. If you don't punish me, I'll do some good stuff for you. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, oh, there must be some kind of balance of good and evil. You know, there must be, put your good things on one side of the scale and your bad things on the other side of the scale. And let's hope the good things outweigh the bad things. And this is how salvation is described in the Quran. On your last day, on the day, and then at the day of judgment, your good works are going to be put on one side of a balance. And your sins are going to be put on the other side of the balance. And if it tips a little bit toward the bad stuff, Allah says, tough luck, bub. Or he doesn't say bub, but if the good one outweighs the bad, oh, good job. David doesn't try to do that. He knows there's not a balance. He knows that he doesn't say, hey, I'm the king. Give me a break here. You made me king. Can you give me a break? No. He knows he's a sinner, whether he's the king or whether he's the janitor in the place or whether he's the servant who's out there pruning the flowers. He knows he's a sinner just like that guy is. I remember when Yeshua does the, does the story of the Pharisee and the publican, and the Pharisee stands there and says, Thank you, Lord, for not making me like that guy over there. What a loser. I do all the stuff, I'm cool, 
Look at these nice vestments I got. <laughs> the other guy beats his breast and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Yeshua says, that guy goes home justified. The Pharisee doesn't. So David understands his powerful position and going to help him out in this. He doesn't ask God to remember the good things that he did because now he's stuck in this web of sin. Oh, I know I did wrong stuff, but remember last week I did a really awesome thing. Remember when we first got together some years ago? I did a lot, I did a lot of awesome stuff. No, he's totally broken and penitent because now he's going to true repentance. He's broken by what he did. Yes, no, broken by what he did. And so he asks for mercy. He asks for forgiveness and mercy and grace. He wants this debt removed from him. Paul and Peter and James and all those guys who wrote letters and preached called themselves doulos, bondservants, because they owed Jesus such a debt that they could never pay. So they were the bondservants. We'll do whatever he wants us to do. We've lost that concept because we think we're awesome because our world revolves around us. So David understands that he's got a debt that has to be removed. This looks forward to Messiah. There's so many messianic passages in all of the Psalms. This looks forward. Messiah, Yeshua, removes the debt completely, blots out the sin completely. Not just a covering totally changes the heart if it's contrite. It says, make me acceptable again. How do you go to heaven? It's easy. You keep all the laws. If you're not holy, you can't come. I'm holy. You be holy because I'm holy. Nothing unholy is going to come into heaven. So does that mean there's nobody there? No, there's a lot of people there. Because now there's a way. It doesn't involve keeping all of the law. So he's saying, make me acceptable again. Restore the relationship. Restore the intimacy that we had. He had said to, uh, he had said to Nathan, now that I've done this horrible thing, God's going to kill me. Nathan says, no, no, he's not going to kill you. But at least to this repentance. Because even though he's not going to physically die from this, He's spiritually dead. So it leads to this repentance. Nathan assures him he's going to be forgiven. David feels defiled by this. He thought he could do whatever he felt like doing. Now he feels defiled. And he wants to be washed and cleaned. You feel dirty. You know, when you do something that causes you to get dirty, you want to take a shower. You want to wash yourself. He wants to be cleaned. He wants, he wants more than mikvah. And interestingly, he writes down his repentance. He writes a song about it. You know, normally we repent in private, right? I don't want everybody here to know what I'm repenting of. I repent in private. He writes a psalm about his repentance. Isn't that interesting? Writes about it. He can read it over and over again. It's going to be sung. All the psalms were sung. 
you know, it's like a country singer. Let me sing you a song about David. <laughs> oh, come on, that's a little bit funny. I don't know much about country music, but you get the idea. You know, it's always like this horrible stuff, and I did all this horrible stuff. And so <laughs> his his repentance is going to be sung about in the synagogues, and still is today. You know, nobody sings about our sins in any church or someplace. It's a good thing that they don't. David's got this thing, the, his sin being sung to this day in all the synagogues and in churches. And we can read it. You can read Psalm 51 and say, Whoa, wow, whoa, I, I, I got that. I, I know how he feels. I'm broken just like that. And he's not ashamed of his repentance. He writes it down. So that now we're 3,000 years, almost 3,000 years from this time. You can open your Bible to that when you get home and you can read his repentance. He reads it. Everybody sings about it. We read it. It's, it's a lesson for everyone. He acknowledges that he sinned. He says, my sin's always before me. He can't get it out of his mind. What did I do? I took this woman. Her husband was my friend. She got pregnant. I had him killed. I got... How can I live with myself? It's always before him, always in his thinking, sorrow and shame, and it affected everything he did. You think every time he walked out on that patio, he didn't think, oh, here's where I saw Bathsheba. When he sat down with his military people, did he think, oh, man, this is where I, pl- where I had her husband killed. I gave the orders. Every time he ate, he said, no, remember, I'm thinking about that week I didn't eat anything, and I was rolling around on the floor. It affected everything in his life. So what about for us reading about repentance? What about for us thinking about repentance that we've done in the past? Well, it helps keep us humble. It helps us to think, I'm not going to do that again. The next time that comes up, There's going to be a way out. I'm going to take advantage of the way out. Am I always going to do it? Of course not. (laughs) But sometimes you're going to do it. You're going to say, I'm not going to do that anymore. And the memory of it helps you to not do it again. David says, I don't want to go through that again. I don't want this broken defilement, this filthy feeling. I don't want that again, ever again. I don't know if he did or had it or not. Most likely he did, but and everybody does. But it also reminds us of the cross, or it should, because all of that stuff led to the cross, because we're so helpless in front of it. If we had to earn our salvation, what would happen? Nobody would earn it. And heaven would be a bunch of beautiful angels, Myriads and myriads, and they'd be singing holy, 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 and it'd all be very beautiful. And there'd be no people there. And the angels would probably like that. (laughs) They don't like people that much anyway. But remembering what we've done and that the fact that he died for it should keep our mind focused. You know, like Paul says, you keep your eyes fixed 
ahead of you. You keep your eyes fixed on the prize. Yeshua said, "You keep if you put your hands to the plow and you look back, you're not worthy to be my disciple. You have to keep looking forward." And so it's 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 a lesson for everyone. Verse four. I think this is the last verse. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. I did horrible stuff. You saw me do it. If you judge me, you'll be blameless because that's what I deserve. I deserve to be in heaven. I'm nice. I'm a good person. You know the old joke, you never pray to God, give me what I deserve. I just want what I deserve. You never say that prayer, because what you deserve is hell. You get heaven, but you deserve hell. So when he judges you, he's blameless. It's not his fault that you violated the law. He knows God's the party that was wronged. He's not making excuses for himself. He's not saying, oh, Lord, you don't understand. I had a bad day. Everybody's driving me crazy. No, he makes no excuses because he knows God is the injured party. And he knows that God has seen the evil. You know, Yeshua said, men, men don't like the light because they do evil deeds. And men don't want light shining on their evil deeds. But David says, you know what? I could be with Bathsheba in a the darkest place in the palace, he's still going to see it. He says, you've seen it. It's all been done in your sight. And he knows that it's rebellion. He knows that he's denied the truth. He's rebelled against the law. He's dishonored God. So he says, if you judge me, you'll be blameless. Because I deserve judgment. He knows he was deceitful. He knows he sinned against a whole bunch of people. He didn't just sin. He sinned against God is the main thing. But he also sinned against a whole bunch of people he was associated with. It's a whole web of trouble. And he knows that the sin against God is the key problem. Yeah, he had Uriah killed, but God judges that. Uriah's not going to judge that. So he knows this is the key problem. So in God's sight, he's not concerned. Oh, I made this slide so bad. He's not concerned at all about God being, when, you're, when he's doing the sin, like, you know, when we're all doing the sin, he's not concerned God's omnipresent and God's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's not concerned about God's judgment. I want to do this. But then when he's confronted, he realizes all of these things. God saw me do it. He knew what I was doing. He saw the whole thing happen, and I'm going to get justice now. It should make you think about the good news of the gospel. It should make you think about the good news of the gospel. <clears throat> so the judgment will be just. 2 Samuel 12, you read this for your homework. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, and David was judged, and you know all the stuff that happened to him. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. 
I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have also given you more. You know, when Isaiah does the parable of the vineyard, I just did a teaching on it yesterday, if you want to go to the YouTube channel and watch it. You know, God says, what else could I have done that I didn't do? I've set up the best conditions. I gave you whatever you needed. I did whatever. What else could I have done? You guys rebel. No matter what I do, you rebel. What else can I do? How can I make you people happy? If that would have been too little, I would have done more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. You had Uriah murdered. I made you king. I gave you law. I set everything up for you, and you had a guy murdered, and you took his wife. Real nice. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. The sword's never going to depart from your house. Philistines are going to attack. His son Absalom is going to attack. He's always going to be in battle. He's always going to be fighting. There isn't going to be peace until Solomon is king. David's never going to have peace. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, his son Absalom. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. You took somebody's wife, I'm going to take your neighbors are going to take your wives. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. In other words, in broad daylight, somebody's going to come and take your wives and lay with them in the sun. Everybody's going to see it. You thought it was good doing it in the dark? Well, your wives are going to get it in the daytime. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. That's going to be your punishment. And this did, in fact, happen. We don't have time to get into all that. So the judgments are righteous. But we live in the new covenant where there's mercy and grace because of Yeshua, because of the cross. So Psalm 51 shows us how, what we are, because we're just like David. Maybe we don't have people killed. Maybe we're not taking other men's wives. Maybe we're not doing all the scheming and stuff that he's doing, but we're doing other things. But because of the new covenant, because of the cross, there's mercy and grace in that judgment that David experiences, we're not going to experience. Whew. So read all Psalm 51. We probably, I was going to do some more next week, but I'm not going to. We'll do something else. So thanks for listening, and let's wrap this up. <laughs>